Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 293 of your Tech Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Multi-Generational Line, an interview with Debbie Kimberg. My name is Richard Johansson, and this week I was blessed to work with a special guest co-host, Jill Wickner of the Pennsylvania Line Resource Network. And folks, Jill and I are bringing to you a really special guest who shared with us a really powerful story about Lyme disease and the many generations of our family who had been suffering with Lyme and congenital Lyme. And she began by sharing with us the story of her son, Sammy, who was actually beginning his college career, getting ready to begin his college career by studying for the ACTs. And this doesn't seem miraculous on its face, but when you listen to Sammy's story and all the challenges he had to overcome to get to the point where he was now getting educated in the general ed population at his school district, and he is getting ready to pursue a four-year degree, you will see that this is really a powerful story. But not only is this a miraculous story because of what's happened with Sammy and how he's been able to overcome many challenges to make his way to a four-year college or getting himself ready for four-year college, but it's also miraculous because Sammy's diagnosis put his family in a position where they got to understand that there are many people in the family who are suffering from Lyme disease. Both of Sammy's brothers have been diagnosed with Lyme disease, and this opened up a whole world for Debbie Kimberg herself, who understood that not only were her children suffering from, from congenital Lyme disease, but so was she. She is actually the second generation of her children to the third generation of folks in their family suffering from Lyme disease. So folks, without further ado, I'm really excited to introduce Debbie Kimberg and multi-generational Lyme. Hello, Debbie Kimberg, and welcome to the Thick Boot Camp Podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. We are really excited to have you. And in addition to having the excitement associated with having you, uh, we here at Tick Bootcamp have one of our favorite people in the whole world co-hosting with me today. I know everyone's going to be really happy to have uh, have uh, a podcast episode without Matt Sabatello. Uh, we have Jill Wickner today, uh, who is uh, somebody we introduced to our community just a short time ago. And she was such an awesome guest. We asked her to be our co-host. So Jill, say hi to folks. Hey, everyone. I'm so happy to be here. So uh, Debbie, um, before um, Debbie starts asking some questions, why don't you share with us, I'm sorry, before Jill starts asking some questions, why don't you share with us where you're uh, calling in from? Sure, I'm down in Dallas, Texas. Been here for about four years, but I'm uh, actually a Midwesterner, born and raised and went to college in St. Louis, Missouri. Oh, that's great. And what do you do, Debbie? Sure. Well. Up until about two months ago, I was at J.P. Morgan Chase and executive director leading product launches internationally for merchant services. And just in the past couple of months, I decided to take a little bit of time off to uh, finish up my memoir and do some advocacy work for, uh, for autism and Lyme disease. Oh, that's great. So what, a little bit about you, what, what was it like growing up in the Midwest and what, what were your dreams and goals growing up? Uh, wow. Uh, so it was a very comfortable life. I lived in the suburbs and a really nice area in St. Louis and, uh, great schools, lots of camps. Um, you know, my family was really terrific and, yeah, there was, uh, it was just very easy going, like easy going Midwestern life. Great. Um, so growing up, so I read about your story and I'm so interested to learn more about you and Sammy and your family, where your experience started in, in the Lyme world. Um, 
I know that you had mentioned that there was no before Lyme, and I'd love for you to share with everyone why that is. And when did you eventually notice to start symptom to start noticing symptoms? When did this start surfacing for you? And I'm wondering, was this something that just came and hit you over the head all at once? Is this something that creeped up on you? Yeah. So um, I'm going to start with my son, Sammy, who I think is going to uh, be an important part of the discussion today. He right now is 17 and he was diagnosed on the autism spectrum. He uh, was not originally diagnosed as ASD when he was first born. He made eye contact. He said, I love you. Very affectionate. But as the years went on, he continued to develop more and more symptoms. And so the first symptom we saw, he was six months old and he had what I think is called a neck roll tick. And so he would just roll his neck back and look pretty far back to both sides. And he would right, and he was just six months old. He, you know, was just sitting up and uh, we first saw it, saw it in a stroller when we were walking him around the neighborhood and thought, oh, you know, that's odd, but it was no big deal. And, um, but then as he got older, we started realizing that uh, he had balance issues. He didn't want to stand up. He was really slow to walk. He, um, he also, as he started getting older, he, and this is just in preschool, but he was not, uh, he was very hyper, wild, crazy, silly, ridiculous. He liked to yell out random things. And, uh, but then over the years, we realized he had learning disabilities. He uh, had developed nine ticks, different kinds of ticks and hyperactivity over the years. And um, I, I can talk about how we got diagnosed with Lyme disease, but I just happened, um, I was actually inspired by a book by uh, Susanna Cahalan and um, about the idea that you could have an infection in your brain that can cause uh, psychiatric difficulties. She wrote a very famous book called Brain on Fire, My Month of Madness, which is fabulous. And uh, I went and took my son to, I never heard of this before, a functional doctor, which probably a lot of folks listening today know what that is, but I didn't know. And I'm just Googling around. And that doctor is the one when my son was 10 years old, who diagnosed him uh, with Lyme disease. Okay. So hearing about these, these symptoms and these issues that Sammy was dealing with, I wonder, because I believe you have three boys, correct? Correct. And Sammy's your youngest? Correct. So, so what can you share about the family dynamics? So, so, so Sammy's going through this experience. You're noticing these things. He's having these challenges. What was that like for your family and, and the way you related to each other and to Sammy when this was happening? Sure. Uh, So um, the experience was different with each child and everybody was infected. So I, I had it, I didn't know I had it, and a uh, very mild case, not the kind that I think you typically talk about on your show, and would have had no reason to seek out a diagnosis or treatment, but it just, 
happened accidentally. It was a lot of accidental things that got us to where we are. And my other son's uh, my oldest one was a really precocious kid and just into everything and doing some really cool things, but he was a pain in the ass. If I uh, can be frank, he was, he had terrible tantrums, trouble with transitions. If you tried to get him away from what he was doing, he would just melt down. Sometimes the tantrums would get so bad. We honestly would put him in his car seat. And like, because he would, he would just fall apart and not be able to calm down. And so we would just say, Hey, we're going to put you here until you get control of yourself. And, um, and then we would take him out And at four years old, he was uh, diagnosed by a psychologist as having oppositional defiant disorder. And so, but you know, you don't think anything of it. Okay. My kid's a hard kid. We were a little worried about him when he went to uh, elementary school, but it seemed, he seemed to figure things out by the time he was six. And so it's like, okay, this kid is okay. And does great in school and um, great in sports and he's fine. My middle son looked completely different. He had uh, ADHD and he was just this happy kid and um, had, you know, just hyper. He had try, started having yeah. trouble in school and focusing executive function. And it's such a shame because he's so bright and he was able to get by for a long time because he was so smart and he could just do all the work and nobody uh, gave him too much trouble, except he was constant movement. And, uh, and then things started to, to devolve after he hit his teen years. But when they were young, you know, it was just your normal family. We went to sports games. We, you know, to athletics and everything was fine. And when their little brother was born, there was an eight years gap between them. Uh, you know, normal brother stuff. How come he's gets all the, how come the baby gets all the attention? And right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, for those who don't know, you mentioned Sammy's um, ODD. Can you explain a little bit, a little bit about what that is? Yeah, it was actually, I think you're talking about my oldest one, Zach, who Zach. was diagnosed with oppositional defiant disorder. Yes. And it's, it's just about a kid having a really hard time not getting their way, like whatever it is in their mind. And I hear lots of different stories from different families mm -hmm. about what kids can get either obsessed about or um, just inflexible about and with with my son it just happened to be he's very intense he's really bright kid and it was whatever he was working on like don't touch me don't talk to me if we had to go to the grocery store or if he was in school and he had to switch activities we all had to um, give him a 10 minute warning and then a five minute warning and then a two minute warning just to help him mentally prepare Okay. Yeah. So, so if I could, I'd like to circle back a little bit. So before we come back around to Sammy and, and your journey moving forward, I'd love to circle back and ask you something about you and your own experience. Um, so I know you had mentioned that for you, there was no before Lyme and that it was congenital Lyme for you. And I'd love, um, I'd love for you to share a little bit about that part of your experience and what kind of challenges you were dealing with at the same time that you're trying to help out your son? 
or sons. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's a very interesting case that I learned after it, this is very typical for the moms to get diagnosed when the kids mm -hmm. get diagnosed. I hear that all the time that these moms look just like me and very mild symptoms, not a big deal. And then you start thinking about the different psychiatric issues or autoimmune issues which can develop even though they're minor and you start putting the pieces together. The doctors help you start, start putting the pieces together. And as that journey happened, putting the pieces together, it was very clear to me, I had symptoms okay. right out, right out the bat as a very young, at a very young age. And, um, and in my, in one of my symptoms was rages. And so it, now I'm talking about, you know, I'm two, three, four years old. I had a lot of separation anxiety. I hated it. What my parents left. Um, I uh, had a hard time sleeping by myself, kind of that whole area of fears. And I didn't want to um, be in my bedroom by myself. I insisted on sleeping with my parents. Until I was 10 years old and uh, we just have terrible temp temper tantrums about whatever you know, I was unhappy about whether, you know, it was something with a girl and all that girl stuff, or I, I didn't get the, you know, guest jeans I wanted that were $150 back in the day. My dad thought I was nuts, <laughs> what, which, whatever it was. And then, but, you know, you get to be 20 years old and you kind of chill out and, you know, everything seems okay. But the, the tantrums I had, when I was young, look a little bit different than they did in my twenties or now I'm in my fifties that I, I was the mother who yelled at her kids. And okay. so, yeah, so my kids, um, you know, Sammy might be really difficult about something and he certainly was oppositional at times or he wouldn't listen or they were hyper and, you know, Hey, you guys got to calm down or we've got to go somewhere. And I would be very quick to yell at them and get very ragey and um, sometimes a little aggressive. I, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. And that was one of uh, my most major symptoms when we saw the doctor. But, you know, I just thought, oh, I got tough kids. I yell at my kids a lot. I didn't think anything of it. Right. So it just seemed like this was, this was just life. This was normal. This was nothing out of the ordinary for you. That's right. Right. So, so as, as we go to, to kind of turn this over to Rich to talk more about the next stage in your journey, I wonder if you can share what inspired you to go, you know, from thinking, okay, this is just your life. And what Sammy and the kids are going through, you know, it was in line with his other diagnoses at the time, yet something motivated you to consider that something else might be at play here. So what was it that inspired you to take things in another direction or explore other options? So I think it started, I mentioned about the book that I read, um, it was over Christmas one year about Susanna Cahalan and her experience getting something called anti-NMDA uh, receptor encephalitis. And 
it was caused by uh, a herpes virus that had entered her brain and caused her in one month, a tremendous amount of psychiatric issues and physical symptoms. So it, after a month, she could barely talk or walk. And it just got me thinking, you mean an infection can, can do that in your brain and cause all those kind of issues? You know, yeah. I've never heard of that. I hadn't heard about syphilis or some of the issues that caused a hundred years ago. So that was my first entree into thinking about, gosh, I, I wonder if we could have something like that. And when I say we, what I was really focused on at the time is my middle son, Jake, who was my really happy, always smiling ADHD kid who in middle school, um, he started to have a lot of anxiety. He started becoming more reclusive. He started seeming, it, it could see the anxiety. And then I started wondering if he was depressed and it just got me thinking, what, I wonder if there's something else that somebody's missing that would cause him to, to really seem to lose himself when he hit those teen years. And that, it was really my middle son that, uh, they got me down the road of thinking about something different and thinking, seeking out a functional doctor or an integrative doctor. Yeah. So, so Deb, I'd like to talk a little bit more with you about uh, your childhood and your interaction with your mom and uh, what you knew about ticks and tick diseases during, uh, during your early life, right? So um, we know that we know that congenital Lyme is uh, becoming less controversial, but there certainly was a window of time where there was some controversy surrounding uh, congenital Lyme disease. In fact, uh, we interviewed Dr. Alan McDonald on this podcast, uh, and he was accused of doctoring data when he first started presenting, um, you know, proof that Lyme disease was in fact uh, a congenital disease. Uh, he he was in fact. Um, he was doing research on, um, on fetuses who were, um, you know, who were uh, clearly, um, you know, uh, harboring uh, the Lyme bacteria after, uh, after uh, miscarriage. And, and, uh, and uh, he was accused of doctoring this data. Of course, now fast forward 30, 30 years later, he is, he is now being considered uh, one of the leaders in the community. So we, we have this sort of controversy surrounding uh, congenital Lyme that I do want to build out with you a little bit. Uh, but let's talk about let's talk about you know your mom and, and how she got it. How far back do you think the congenital line goes, and when do you think the first tick bite took place? And how are you teasing out whether or not you were sick from uh, you, you know congenital line entirely, or whether or not you were being bitten by ticks at the same time that some of these things were going on in your life? I yeah, it uh, takes me way back. Um, it, my mom and I had a really difficult, uh, relationship after I got to about in my teen years, but worse than you would typically hear about a mom and, and a daughter. And so here I am all ragey. I had crying fits in high school, uh, uh probably a couple times a week for a couple hours at a time. And my parents didn't know what to do with me. And a lot of it was over my mom who had OCD that was driving me crazy. And she was afraid of germs and she didn't like to clean. And she was a checker, you know, uh, every time she'd go past the, uh, 
the oven. She turned it on and off three times to make sure it was really off. And the same with the dishwasher. So our dishwasher used to break all the time because she kept flipping the switch on it. And, you know, looking back on it is not normal to have gotten as upset about my mom's OCT as I did. And my family, and my family knew it. Um, but you know, they took me to a psychiatrist. I said, my mom has OCD. She tries me crazy. And, you know, I'm smart. I did very well in school. Like everything else about me was perfectly normal. And so the doctors, uh, the psychiatrist said, yeah, you're fine. And, uh, and gave my dad some value so he could deal with my mom and me, but I, it goes back very far. And, um, and the way I know that I was infected so young is that I had symptoms probably showing by the time I was two and they're not symptoms that you would typically think of Lyme disease, right? These are all psychiatric symptoms that are much more prevalent in children who have a congenital case of Lyme disease. And so it has a very, very different kind of uh, presentation than somebody like yourselves who had a lot of pain or, um, or brain fog or fatigue or so on. And um, yeah, it took us a long time to, uh, to put all the pieces together. I, I will say one thing. So my mom doesn't ever remember being bitten by a tick. I was not, I had symptoms from two years old. So I, I know I was congenital also. And by the way, I happened to be bitten by a few ticks over two summers at camp when I was seven or eight. And my mom, looking back on it, thinks that's when all the rages started is sometime after those additional tick bites. So let's pause there. So um, we actually have a, a pretty well-documented case here on Long Island where there was an infant it was bitten by a tick. Her mother found um, found a tick on her, uh, and the and the baby got Lyme disease as an infant, right? So what I'm really getting at with you, so let me let me let me um, let me take the cover off. Uh, you've been arguing that there's a difference between a presentation of Lyme if it's congenital versus a presentation of Lyme if it comes from a tick bite, right? So that's really what I'm trying to get to with you. So what is the difference? That, uh, that your presentation um, offered that leads you to believe that you weren't bitten by a tick as an infant, as opposed to, as opposed to uh, contracting the disease congenitally? Sure. Well, I think one of the key things is the age that I started exhibiting symptoms so early. And the second thing is the big focus on the psychiatric symptoms, which I, I know we'll get to this, but really believe it was driven by pretty much Bartonella. That was it for all three generations of us. That was the big driver for us. And, um, and so it was, it was when the symptoms started in that the presentation was mostly psychiatric. Like there were there were very phys few physical symptoms. So, so you believe that the neurological presentation at an early age is the reason why it was congenital, as opposed to you being possibly bitten by a tick as a as an infant or as a baby, um, and that you believe that for some reason that a tick bite would not have presented as neurological line, but a but congenital would. And, and tell us why you believe that's the case. 
uh, just experience, number one. Number two, I talk to moms almost, uh, almost every day, every other day who are looking for help and guidance. And it, it's really a similar story. I guess not that everybody has congenital Lyme themselves like me, but that these kids are being born and they have all kinds of psychiatric issues. And the moms, I, the first thing I always do when the moms reach out to me is I say, do you have symptoms? Maybe self symptoms. And sometimes it's the dads too, that you just didn't realize. And then the light bulb goes on and the moms are like, oh my God, I have ADHD and thyroid disease, or they have some anxiety or a little bit of arthritis or thyroid, or maybe some neuropathy, but it's all very mild, but the light bulb goes on and they start realizing, oh my God, all my kids actually have a little bit of symptoms. I have symptoms and I, I can see the picture now. I can see how it's all related. W, there's also a, um, a lot of controversy regarding the sexual transmission of Lyme, right? Um, and there have been some studies that have supported the position that the sexual transmission of Lyme is possible, right? And, and again, we, we've, we've asked this question with a lot of guests. Dr. Fallon, for example, in his book, Dr. Brian Fallon, again, one of the leading Lyme psychiatrists in the, in the world, has argued, at least in his book, that he does not believe that Lyme disease is a sexually transmitted disease. And he believes that the reason why we have, in many cases, both sexual partners uh, presenting with Lyme disease is because both sexual partners are living in tick endemic communities. And because you're living in a tick endemic community, more likely to both be bitten. And because you're more likely to both be bitten, you're both going to, um, both going to have Lyme disease showing up in your vaginal fluids and in your sperm. Um, so because we have this sort of debate going on in the community about the sexual transmission of Lyme. I'm just wondering whether or not your experience will sort of give us some insight into, you know, these different presentations, right? Because everybody in your family has, um, has Lyme disease going back a generation and now your, your entire family. And, you know, you were then getting bitten by ticks when you were seven or eight years old. And, you know, how much of this presentation is uh, you know, initially from a tick bite, how much of it is congenital, how much of it is now exacerbated by the new microbes that are being spit into you when you're getting bitten by additional ticks, right? I mean, there's just so many different sort of, um, you know, permutations here that I'm not sure we can tease out one or the other, which is again, why I'm trying to get back to you with why you believe there's a different presentation with congenital Lyme versus, versus a tick bite generated Lyme disease. Um, and if that does help us with, you know, uh, unpacking, you know, the, these other issues that are, you know, becoming bigger and bigger problems in, in the community, because I think as, as scary as, uh, as a tick bite is and Lyme disease, what's even more scary is congenital uh, transmission and sexual transmission, right? Because it looks like, it, you know, if we have those issues at the rate that they appear to be, then the, then the, you know, then the expansion of this disease is going to be substantially faster than we're already seeing. Yeah, it's a great, great set of questions. So maybe we could talk about the sexual transmission first. And this is all anecdotal, right? I don't have any more research than all of the top experts. But as I as I talk to parents, most of the time the moms have symptoms, but there are definitely uh, people that I talk to 
and they and the moms will say, I don't have any symptoms or maybe have some anxiety and they've really had no symptoms at all. And maybe those symptoms came on in the past couple of years, but they didn't think anything of it. It wasn't a big deal, but they look at the list and they go, oh my God, my husband has so many things on this list. You know, a lot of times I'll hear about ADHD. Gosh, my husband's all over the place. His brain fog's terrible. He's got ADHD. He's been suffering from mood swings and bipolar, um, panic attacks could be a whole range of symptoms. I don't hear about uh, autoimmune diseases quite as much in the dads as I do in the moms, um, but definitely psychiatric symptoms. And there's enough conversations that I've had like that where it makes me think that the dads are the ones who really have the infection Maybe they got married, their wives haven't had the infection very long, haven't developed very many symptoms, but it's getting through um, the placenta and the cord blood and, and infecting the children. Yeah, so, so we know that for sure that, I, I, I think we've definitively proven that congenital line is real, right? I, I think the community has so, certainly gotten past that, but there is sort of some debate about the sexual transmission of Lyme. And uh, we've interviewed Dr. Bill Rolls, for example, a couple of times. We've asked him about the sexual transmission of Lyme. And he has argued, yes, it is possible, but the microbe load is so low that in most cases, your immune system can manage uh, the level of microbes that would be transmitted in sexual transmission. We asked Dr. McDonald, who we referenced earlier today, who was the, you know, the famous pathologist or is the famous pathologist. And he, he, he referenced the dog studies, which he said uh, definitively demonstrated that at least in, you know, from dog to dog, that, uh, that Lyme disease can be sexually transmitted. So, you know, I, I think that's still an open question, but when you start to see everyone in a family having Lyme disease, I think we have to certainly be open to the possibility that that's real. And, and I do want to talk to you about one other point, but I'd really like Jill's thought on this. Jill, what, what are your thoughts on sexual transmission of Lyme? And, and was that a part of your, um, your analysis and your journey in your family? Um, it wasn't a part of, of my journey um, with my experience, but, you know, I, I've read about it. And while it seems that there's nothing definitive where someone could say absolutely yes or absolutely no, um, I, I did actually, this just came to mind, my first Lyme doctor. Um, I remember meeting someone in her waiting room um, who was talking to me about her um, about a newborn who had gotten Lyme. It was a congenital case of Lyme. And I had asked that Lyme doctor about it and she full heartedly believed in it. So, I mean, it seems to me that th the stories you hear and what I've heard from doctors themselves, I feel like there's absolutely something to it. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, what studies are done and, and what, what's being said next about this. So Debbie, you, is your gut telling you, and I know you're, you're being, I appreciate you distinguishing research from what your gut is telling you or your, or your anecdotal experiences are, is your gut telling you that it's the dads who are passing on the disease or you believe it's the moms who are passing on the disease or is there a, not a distinction between the two in your mind? Uh, so I, I full heartedly believe it's the moms who are passing on to the children in utero and uh, and sometimes the moms are getting it from the dads. Sometimes the moms are getting it from a tick bite. Sometimes uh, I've definitely talked to people who go, oh my gosh, my family has all these weird symptoms too. 
my, I bet my mom has it. I bet my siblings have it. I, you know, sometimes maybe even a grandma. And so, you know, I think one of the scary parts, which you just talked about, is that people don't know how they got, uh, could have gotten infected. It could have been through your parents. It could be through a partner. Um, and I think there could be a very big epidemic that we just don't understand yet because there's so many people who aren't getting diagnosed like myself for a long time because the symptoms were so mild. And then what are the real impacts on, on the children? Okay, so now let's talk about, again, your, your childhood. Um, what did you know about ticks and tick diseases? Meaning, were you aware of ticks? Were you aware of tick diseases? And were you checking yourself? And if you were, was that something that your mother passed on to you um, as, as part of your, your childhood and your rearing as a child? Or were you just oblivious to all of this? I, I didn't know a tick bite caused any problems at all. Growing up, never heard of Lyme disease. And... I mentioned that I was bit by a couple ticks over two summers at a camp that was in the woods and I'd come home. It would gross me out. That was probably my biggest reaction. Like, Oh, what, you know, this thing sucking my blood and it's in my hair or behind my ear. And my dad would get some alcohol and coax the, the tick out of, uh, out of my head and kill it you know, like a cockroach and take a shoe and toss it out. And that was the end of it. So you, you were, you were being bitten by ticks and you are aware of ticks, but they were just sort of a nuisance, not something that you were particularly concerned about. For, for sure. I mean, to, it, growing up, it was no different than a mosquito bite. It just, there was nothing to it. Nothing bad could happen from it. Now you mentioned your dad, but you believe that it was your mom who ultimately passed the disease on to you in utero. Do you uh, do you believe your mom was aware of ticks during her childhood or even during her, her, her adult life prior to your birth? And was she taking any steps to protect herself from coming in contact with ticks? So my mom does not remember ever being bitten by a tick. And that's very common. Very few people I talk to about this ever remember being bitten by a tick. And in the Midwest, in St. Louis, where uh, where I'm from, it nobody thinks about it. It's not a big deal. Nobody's aware of Lyme disease. It's not like the Northeast where everybody is super hyper aware. And I now that I understand the symptoms, I see the kids, the parents. You can kind of tell who the families are. Who are infected I think you know I see it all over and just there's no awareness people are not understanding what uh what can happen through a tick bite and the problems it can cause with the kids so another piece I want to explore with you is you talked about your tick bite experience being one that happened when you know you were away from your home you were doing something else and you know and most people believe that you know they should be checking themselves for ticks um, when they go hiking or they go camping or they're in, you know, they're going to camp or, you know, that kind of thing. But as it turns out, 70% of the people who are uh, infected with Lyme disease actually have suffer a tick bite in their own yard or in their own house, right? And another one of the reasons why people sort of believe that, you know, that um, they, you know, they weren't, uh, they weren't uh, bitten, uh, bitten by a tick is because they're simply not checking, right? If you're not checking, you're not gonna find it. They're really small. You can't see them, 
you, you know, the way you check for a tick is, is not necessarily with your eyes. I mean, and we'll, we can spend some more time talking about that. So the overwhelming majority of people have Lyme disease probably got that uh, from a tick bite and didn't find it because ticks are really good at hiding, right? And they're really hard to find. And that's why people are getting sick. But there's another piece to it, of course, is we're not aware. And those of us who are aware are generally not taking our, checking ourselves all the time because we think we're only going to get bitten by a tick if we're out of our house or away from our yard, which is just the opposite of what the reality is. So um, when you were, again, we'll talk about your childhood and then we'll talk a little bit more about your children. When you, when you were young, were you checking yourself on a regular basis to find out if you were being bitten by ticks or was it just these sort of odd incidents when you were, you know, either away at camp or camping and you were, you were, you were more um, aware of um, the possibility? I never checked myself for ticks once except for those two summers where I was at a day camp and I knew that there were ticks, you know, after you get the first tick bite, then you start paying attention, but it, it just wasn't on the radar. Even today, I think yeah. with my own kids, when they're out and about, I just don't think people are really thinking about that and that they need to be vigilant and check for ticks. And if you're bitten that you really like, uh, like you shared with me earlier, they, you need to go seek out a doctor and probably get, if nothing else, some prophylactic uh, antibiotics to make sure nothing develops. So Joe, why don't you talk to us about your experience again? And it, you did build this out for us during uh, the great podcast that we did with you, but talk to us about um, you know, your experience and even now at this stage in life, are you checking yourself regularly for ticks? Oh my God, absolutely not. I mean, Debbie, I'm hearing what you're saying and I'm just, I'm sitting here nodding and thinking absolutely because growing up, I had no idea. I don't know if I even knew what a tick was, if I had heard about ticks. And I went to day camp every summer um, from the time I was a little kid to working as counselor. And, you know, it wasn't something my parents ever mentioned uh, to me. It wasn't anything I had ever heard of. I don't remember a camp counselor or camp director ever saying a word about it, saying, you know, hey, this is something you have to look out for. I remember at camp, everyone was paranoid about head lice and checking the campers for head lice, but you never heard, you know, and keeping the annoying mosquitoes away but you never heard anything about ticks ever. Um, so, so, you know, Debbie, like you, I, I didn't know there was any danger out there to be aware of. So I never did a tick check. Um, I knew nothing about it. So it's, it's amazing to hear how it's just, it's such a, it's such a danger. It's so prevalent. And yet so many of us, especially growing up, it just, it wasn't on our radar. So, so then before we move on and start building out some more of your story with your children, I want to talk to you about uh, the risk of Lyme disease, right? So um, we know that humans have been bitten by ticks as long as there were humans, right? That's one of the famous quotes from Dr. Rawls's book, Unlocking Lyme, right? We've always been bitten by ticks. Um, ticks are, you know, there, there, are, um, there are fossilized ticks in the uh, American Museum of Natural History here in New York that are over 3 million years old, right? So ticks have always been with us, right? Humans have always been getting bitten by ticks. Um, why do you think things are different now and have been maybe over the last 50 years than they were during the two to three million years of human history that predates the last 50 years? What are your thoughts on that? Um, I don't really know. I, one thing that sticks in my mind a lot is all the psychiatric symptoms that, that we're seeing now. And especially, you know, just to take one cohort, 
the children who get diagnosed with autism, whether it's, you know, out of the gate at six months or 18 months old, or like my youngest son who really didn't get the official diagnosis until he turned 13. Um, part of me wonders in what's been so problematic for my family is Bartonella. And uh, I think it would be good to really talk about that. But I wonder if maybe there's certain pathogens that have really become much more prevalent through blood transmission and different factors that maybe weren't as prevalent back then. Well, so uh, General Stanley McChrystal wrote a book recently entitled Risk. And he argued that risk is threat times vulnerability. Right. And what we've been sort of observing here at Take Bootcamp, and I'd really like both of you to weigh in on this, is that the risk is increasing because of both prongs of the risk formula are changing for us. Right. If we look at the threat piece of the prong, because of uh, climate change and because of global warming and because of the way we are building our housing, uh, there are more ticks and we're more likely to come in contact with ticks. So the threat seems to be increasing. Um, that we are going to be coming in contact with ticks. Now, of course, the threat becomes even more scary, Debbie, if we are passing it on sexually and we are passing it on congenitally. And we think certainly the research is supporting the congenital piece of that. So give me your thoughts first, Debbie, on the threat prong of the threat time vulnerability um, risk analysis. Yeah, I. Uh, it, it's really hard for me to say, but it definitely seems like the threat is continuing to increase. And now, especially that I think we're all getting a much better understanding about the potential for congenital transmission that, you know, we have to be worried about our own parents and our own children, our own, you know, siblings and family. And there's so many uh, ways to get the disease and you don't know about a tick bite most of the time that that really makes all of us much more uh, vulnerable. And it's really incumbent on our medical community. And I don't just mean our doctors that are treating us today. I mean, just our regular doctors that we see every day, our pediatricians, our internists, that everybody's gonna need to be screened. That, that's my belief. That's how we're gonna get out of this is to make sure every single person is screened, every single child, every single pregnant woman, and, um, and that we're, we're getting the right care to make sure that we don't continue the transmission. I'm gonna debate that with you in a minute, but let me go to Jill for a second before we, before we debate that one. Talk to me about the threat, Jill, and, and, and what, do you, what do you think about the increased threat of the threat times vulnerability prong of risk? Do you think the threat is greater because there are just more ticks and because there are more ticks we're coming in contact with them because because climate change is creating an environment where where it's more habitable for ticks they have longer breeding periods they uh, they they are just there are just more of them yeah i mean i think that's a huge component of it and and you know like you were saying the, the climate change i feel like tick habitats are expanding into areas where they weren't prevalent before. Um, when you're looking at wildlife population and mice and different animals that are known to carry ticks and basically deposit them into different areas, that's something to look out for. Um, so, so it's scary because, I mean, we see how the situation is right now. And then, you know, like we're talking about this expanding even farther out 
putting more people at risk. It's it's scary to think about, especially too when you think about ticks. Um, you know, they say that ticks can survive the winter season, that they are out in the winter, that they can live under snow. So um, I remember at one point I used to think, okay, whew, at least summer's over. It's cold weather months. I cannot be nervous about this for a short time. And that's not really the case either. It's a year-round concern. So Deb, let me let me let me drop another another um, one of the community bombs on you. We interviewed uh, Chris Newby, who's the author of Bitten, uh, and she's arguing, at least in her book, that it's not uh, that the threat is not increased just because of tick habitats and wildlife populations being available as blood meals for ticks, the way Jill just brilliantly argued, and and it's not just because of the uh, the strong uh, data that's supporting the inner family transmission, the way you just so, I, I guess, as well, brilliantly argued. But it's also because uh, the, the, um, the uh, microbes are more viral because they were weaponized uh, during World War II. And she even argued that they may have been weaponized by Willie Bergdorfer, the guy who we give all the credit to for, um, you know, for discovering the bacteria. So Debbie, give me your thoughts on on um, the weaponization of, of uh, these microbes and whether or not you think that may be playing a role in your family's experience. I have no idea. So I, and I've been meaning to pick up uh, Chris Newby's book and read about it. Uh, it. It's a hard thing to say. It's gonna take a lot of investigative work. Maybe some great reporters can really track down what the true answer is. I think um, you, I think we cannot, so that's definitely a possibility, but I don't think we can ignore just the, the evolution of microbes and that they do become more violent uh, and, and more pervasive, cause more damage. And we're seeing that right now with COVID. I think that is a good lesson for all of us. You know, think about how often we're hearing about oh my God, there's a new variant and it causes some different symptoms or it's more transmissible and it's just natural evolution of, of these pathogens. And then you combine that with all the environmental factors that you and Jill talked about with the number of hosts, which I'm contending are, in, are increasing too. So it's not just the vectors themselves, but the more animals, the more people that have the disease, it's going to skyrocket how virulent, uh, intransmissible the infections are from all these different vectors. So Jill, uh, oh, by the way, Debbie, I do want to strongly encourage you to listen to our podcast interview with, with Chris Newby uh, in advance of you reading the book. Uh, we grilled her and she was brilliant. I mean, just a brilliant, brilliant reporter and, uh, and, and a brilliant woman and a great book. So I, I, saw, I don't want to discourage you from reading the book, but I can give you a quick shortcut. Listen to our episode. It was really an exciting episode. So Jill, uh, Jill give me your thoughts on, on, uh, on uh, the weaponization of Lyme disease and, um, and the possibility of the reason the virulence level of these microbes has been, um, has been greater uh, is because uh, because of maybe the uh, the work that was done in and around World War II. You know what, I Debbie, I want to copy your answer and say I have no idea because I I really I don't know. I've done some reading on it, and you know I, I've read a lot of the theories, but I I don't actually I don't know. 
I don't know what the answer is. All right. Well, I'm hoping you'll both read the book and then we'll follow up, yeah. we'll do a follow up uh, podcast episode on, on uh, the weaponization of life. So let's talk about the vulnerability side of threat, right? So we're, uh, we're arguing here at Tech Bootcamp that the risk is increasing because the threat is greater. Uh, but now we have the vulnerability piece. Right? And the vulnerability piece is our body's ability to fight off the microbes, right? And that's the piece, for example, that Dr. Rawls has been spending a lot of time discussing. Um, in his work, and I think brilliantly, right, that, that we're less capable of fighting off the microbes because of the challenges of living in the toxic soup that we live in in modern life. So, Debbie, give me your thoughts on, on why perhaps um, your family and you in particular may have been more vulnerable than people who are in previous generations because of the toxic soup that we find ourselves living in. Gosh, there's so many potential answers to that. And it it's really hard to say, you know, is it all the antibiotics that we're taking? Is it, um, is it just that we're traveling a lot more, we're a lot more mobile, and so we're we're more exposed to it? Is it the food? And I mean, even our food has antibiotics in it. And we you know, I'm, I love that we're seeing uh, so much effort right now, get antibiotics out of our meat, out of our poultry. And I think that's huge. I, I think there's a lot, a lot of potential reasons and um, it, it's hard to say. I do know it, this is going to take us a little bit down a different path for a minute that there's a lot of talk about building up your immunity and we are, um, as patients, you know, Lyme sufferers, that we need to build up our gut and th all this work to do that, to help improve uh, the outcome in finally beating this disease. And we followed uh, a bunch of doctor's advice on that for a number of years and tried all different kinds of things. And in, our, in my family's case, so myself and my three boys, it didn't make a difference. And I don't wanna discourage people from doing that because we should always try and be as healthy as we could be. But what helped us was getting the right treatment. That was the number one thing. And so, you know, you kind of think about COVID and there's a lot of different medications that you, you could take um, that they were suggesting this may help, that may help. But, you know, at the end of the day, there were out of 4,000 drugs, there were one or two that were really the right drugs to um, really improve the outcome of COVID. Remdesivir, can't say that well, but that was one. And I know they have some new ones that uh, really help on early cases to get you better. And so, you know, just as far as looking at what, what the most important things are. I just want to uh, say how important it is to make sure you get the right treatment. Yeah, for sure. And we're going to talk more about that. Um, I do want to build that out with, with you and, and your family's experience in a little bit more detail. Uh, but um, do you believe that um, because, of, because of all of the different factors that you outlined, uh, whether it be um, you know, uh, your diet, uh, the, the petrochemicals you come in contact with, the stresses of living in the modern world, the emotional stresses and the psychological stresses and the social stresses. Do you believe all of those 
stressors played a role in your mother's inability to fight off this disease and then your inability to fight off this disease? Uh, very, very possibly. It's so, it's so hard to say, you know, is it just that fewer people had it back then? Is it genetic? I think there's definitely a genetic component to it and maybe the kinds of things that could get triggered, like in our case, the psychiatric issues. And, and for sure, it could be any of those environmental things. So to give me your thoughts on, on the vulnerability prong of the risk equals threat times vulnerability. Do you think we're more vulnerable because of the modern environment that we're living in? And did you make changes in your environment um, so that you could um, improve your chances of overcoming the, uh, the challenges that you faced? Uh, yeah, so I, I definitely think that plays a role and, you know, we followed a lot of doctors' advice as far as the environment. We got our house uh, screened for mold and made sure that we didn't have mold toxicity, which we didn't. So it, we didn't have to fight that battle. I know that can be really tough. And we followed all of the advice about the diet. And I was the vigilant mom and realized that we all... I shouldn't say we all, but my youngest, Sammy, and myself in particular had a lot of food sensitivities that we weren't aware of, had no idea. And so I was vigilant about getting the gluten and the dairy out and doing an elimination diet and making sure that we got those, uh, those factors out of the way and they didn't impede our, our progress. I will say just for the food sensitivities, uh, gluten and dairy in particular, that um, I didn't know either of us had any kind of symptoms or it made any difference. And then you realize after you take it out, my son, his tics and age regression and baby talk improved. And for me, it was more about digestion and maybe a little gas, what have you. And, um, but again, and this was surprising to me that getting treated for Bartonella completely cleared up the food sensitivities okay. and, and now we can eat anything that we want. I never thought I would be able to eat, you know, a uh, chocolate croissant or lox and bagel on a Sunday again. And it's pretty awesome that uh, we can eat whatever we want now. So Debbie, let's build that out. Right. So, so you, you shared with us that your, your children, all three of your children were having symptoms. You shared with us that, you know, you then had this epiphany that, um, that your, your children were suffering from Lyme disease and uh, like many parents, you were, you were diagnosed with Lyme disease as well. And now I guess you shared with us that your husband is also diagnosed with Lyme as well? No, he won't get tested. Okay. He says he's fine. That's All a whole right. other discussion. Yeah, so we'll, <laughs> I, will, it will, we, I think that is a, a, certainly a separate conversation that we, that we may want to have uh, later on. But let me say with this, this point, which is, so how did you ultimately get diagnosed with Lyme disease? I, so when my youngest son was diagnosed and we started talking about all the symptoms uh, and, and then we said, you know what, let's just test the family because, hey, it looks like we all have some of these symptoms. And that, that's when we were diagnosed. So it was about six months after we saw the functional uh, or integrative doctor that, that we were all diagnosed. One interesting thing about it 
is that we took Digenics test, and this was back in 2015, and we all had different pathogens that showed up positive. And interestingly enough, I had the least amount. So I had, I had one child that my middle one, that was the only one who's positive for Bartonella, Hensley. I had one child who Sammy was IgG positive for Babesia macrati. I had two kids who were positive for Borrelia on Igenix. And Sammy and myself had a couple bands of IgG positivity. It was, it was really a messy test. And it was only after many years dealing with this and figuring out what medicines we responded to that we all had all of it. It just didn't show up on the testing. Okay. So are you sure that all of you had all of it? And why do you believe if you all had all of it, it didn't show up in the testing? Uh, so we've gotten tested since. And after you start treating, then the tests start uh, getting more accurate. And so I think that's part of it that um, one, maybe the tests aren't sensitive enough Two, that our bodies or our immune uh, status is low and we're just not creating the antibodies to even be picked up by, by these better tests. Um, and then like you hear about Bartonella and I think the same is true with Borrelia that it can go into any tissue in the body and it's going in and out of tissues and it can't always be picked up in the blood and it is really hard to, to find. So is it possible that you all had contracted the disease differently and that's why it's, that's why it is testing differently, right? So when, when I hear about families like yours where you have a diversity of presentations in your testing, it does cause me to question whether or not certainly it's entirely congenital because if you're all being bitten by different ticks and the different ticks have different microbes at the time that they're biting you, then you're going to have different microbes in you. And that, in my view, undermines the, the strength of the congenital transmission as opposed to it being a tick transmission. Yeah, yeah, and, and you've asked this a couple couple different ways. The, I think that question will always be asked until you get the definitive proof that you've got the placenta and the cord blood and you can see exactly what was, what was in it and what was potentially transmitted. Um, which is uh, some doctors are working on that right now for us. So uh, for Sammy, so hopefully uh, we'll get some definitive answers that we can share with uh, about that. Um, but I, I think what is very concerning that I'm seeing, especially talking to parents, is that, you know, it's not just one kid. It's usually all the kids. They, and you may have some kids with some really mild symptoms. A lot of the kids are just showing up too young with these kind of psychiatric symptoms to uh, push aside the idea that, you know what, maybe everybody got bit by different ticks on different walks or vacations. And it's just a coincidence that you're seeing it with this kind of prevalence in families. It really begs the question, you know, hey, you know, it's very reasonable that these are congenital cases, just the presentations themselves are very different on 
with each person. Could be. So, so let, but let me, let me challenge you on something else then. So the, we, you, you were, you were arguing a little bit earlier that uh, the way out of this challenge uh, is to have better trained doctors and to have regular testing of children and pregnant women. And I don't disagree with that. I think we need to have better training and we have to, we have to receive more competent medical care. But I'd make another argument. I think the way out of this are moms and dads, right? I think we're the way out of it, right? Because if we are educating our children to be aware of this risk and we are training our children on how to check themselves and we're consistently checking our children as part of our parenting experience, then, uh, then we are certainly reducing the risk that they'll get reinfected if they were in fact infected during the course of the time that they were in utero. And we are going to reduce the risk that we're gonna have these additional microbes being spit into our children and making it more likely that they're going to become chronically ill. So give me your thoughts on, on this sort of um, you know, perspective that it's actually the medical community that's gonna get, get us out of this rather than moms and dads getting us out of this. Yeah. Uh, 100% to everything you just said. It, it you know, the, I think the difference is preventative versus how, how do we treat society and make sure that we are not infecting infecting our family. And so that the last part is where it's so important for the doctors uh, to come to the table and uh, CDC and everybody get trained, make sure we've got good testing, make sure they understand how to give a clinical diagnosis. And so that's one really important part of the equation. And the other is exactly what you're saying. Every single day, we have to be vigilant and make sure that uh, our communities understand, our friends understand, our families, our kids, that you can get infected any day and you, you have to be checking yourself when, even in your backyard, right? Kids are outside. Especially playing, in your backyard. Yeah, playing all the time. And, you, you know, maybe in your pets, right? It's not just you, but your pets in your backyard. And everybody needs to be checked and, and get uh, screened and wear um, tick propellant to make sure we don't get infected again. So Jill, I just want to share with you and maybe your organization's perspective on this. Uh, the last three times I was bitten by a tick and it's all happened this year, uh, or I had ticks, I found ticks uh, crawling on me. They were actually brought into my house by my dog, right? And we have, uh, we have a dog who's out and about and she has, you know, she has a Ceresto collar on. We are really vigilant about, you know, about looking for ticks, but uh, the last three ticks I've gotten on me all came from my dog. So what, what are your thoughts, Jill, on, on companion animals and the impact that they have on bringing ticks into our houses? Oh, well, I think, I mean, Debbie, I think you just hit the nail on the head with that, that it's it's not only checking ourselves and our, and our kids, um, but our pets as well. It's so important to do these tick checks on your pets because, you know, Rich, like you just said, they're bringing things into the home. Um, so whenever your, you know, your dog, your your pet comes in, you want to to check them, check the paws, check the face, the ears, check everywhere, just like you would check your own body for ticks. Because you're, I mean, it's just giving them entrance into your home. Um, I know so many people with dogs who they'll call and say, oh my God, I just vacuumed another tick off the rug. Um, and, you know, so it's, it's so important to be vigilant about that. And what's great is too, it's such a quick thing to do. It's such an easy thing to work into your daily routine. It really only takes a few minutes. So taking a few minutes every day to just check your body thoroughly for ticks or check your pets 
I mean, that can make the difference between maintaining good health and winding up with possibly, you know, a life-threatening or debilitating illness. So now, Debbie, you, you said that. Uh, let's talk about let's talk about your your son Sammy and Sammy's Sammy's presentations first because they seem to be the most uh, the most extreme in your family, right? Um, uh, talk about talk about how you went from from uh, recognizing um, and, and use the word tick a couple of times. I said that first distinguish the different kinds of ticks, right? The ticks that Sammy was presenting with versus the ticks that are the vectors for, uh, for transmitting Lyme disease. Yeah, that's important, uh, important point. Tick, T-I-C versus tick, T-I-C-K. Uh, so Sammy had a bunch of things that just developed more and more over time. So he had vocal tics. He used to come in in every morning and this is part of his hyperactivity too. But instead of saying good morning, he'd go blah every morning. And I just chalked it up. Oh, he's silly and wild. And I guess that's his thing and whatever. Um, but over time he started stammering. He, he had a throat clearing tick sometimes. Uh, he also had just, sometimes I think people think of the motor movements as just hyperactivity, but after a while, you start to wonder if those are different kinds of tics also. So the constant hopping, um, bending side to side, he, he was flapping his arms when he got excited. And that's something that you'll hear very characteristic of children on the spectrum is they, and they just get excited and, and they flap. Um, and uh, he would run across the house like for no reason, just to go to his bedroom. Like there was just constant movement, constant vocal sounds. Oh, one of my favorites was his facial grimace. I don't know if uh, you're familiar with that. And I know a lot of autism uh, kids can, can have this presentation, but just you'll be talking to them or you might be scolding them. And he just all of a sudden go, and it was like a perfectly round square, like chicken run. It was the chicken run face, you know, with the Play-Doh. And, um, and, you know, I didn't put all the different things together until we finally got the right treatment. And I uh, definitely wanna, wanna make sure that we touch on this, but what was really interesting to me, and it took a long time to get treatment, but that when we got the right treatment for Bartonella, that all of those things cleared up within a couple days all together, all at the same time. And it made me kind of realize they were all all related. I don't know how in the brain that all works, but uh, one, they were, it was definitely the Bartonella treatment that made the difference and, and just the way they all resolved so quickly. So, so Debbie, Sammy was dealing with these issues and your family was dealing with these issues um, with Sammy for 10 years before he was diagnosed, correct? Yes. So when and we say diagnosed, he was diagnosed with Lyme disease when he was 10 years old. So prior to the Lyme disease diagnosis, was he diagnosed with autism or, or, or uh, on the autism spectrum? Uh, so there were definitely suspicions. You know, when 
Sammy was in kindergarten, he flapped his arms at school and the principal took me aside and said, hey, you know, your son might have autism because he's flapping his hands. And I just pushed it out of my mind. He, we had seen so many doctors for so many things, neurology, uh, the balance issues. Uh, we just never, nobody ever said anything that specific, even though he had lots of learning disabilities, he had a hard time reading, had so many issues, but I figured, you know what, somebody would have said something if, if he had that diagnosis. But when he did get it, we weren't surprised because you know, basically the school had been talking about it for a while and then his symptoms progressively got worse. And then he wasn't diagnosed officially until he was 13. I could have sought it out sooner and gotten it sooner, but that's when we got final definitive word from the neurologist that he, he has autism spectrum disorder. Okay, so, so, so the diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder was three years after he was diagnosed with Lyme disease? Yes. Okay. So do you believe that the autism spectrum disorder is a correct diagnosis or do you think that diagnosis is incorrect? It, it is a description for a set of symptoms. And one of the possible causes and potentially a very important prevalent cause is an in, the infection of Lyme disease and, oh. and the co-infections. So what I'm concerned about with the with the this sort of different or this differential diagnosis is um, is it proper to diagnose someone with autism spectrum disorder when in fact they have Lyme disease and is there a danger not only for Sammy but for the rest of the community to have this autism spectrum disorder when in fact it's really Lyme disease? It's a very difficult, confusing time because what doctors see are a set of behaviors, right? And so you look in the DSM and it says, if this child exhibits these various behaviors, um, it's a scale, and then that will determine whether or not the child's on the spectrum and how serious of, of a case they have, but there's no more investigation into what's going on with that child than looking at a bunch of symptoms and classifying it as far as severity. And so it, the big gap is how do you get from, okay, you see a bunch of symptoms, let's not just label them and try to do whatever we can to coach the kids and the families of how to cope with it. We have to dig deeper and figure out if there's some infectious cause going on that's triggering all this weird behavior. That's my point, right? Shouldn't he really be diagnosed with having Lyme disease spectrum disorder rather than autism spectrum disorder? Because if he has Lyme disease spectrum disorder, it's a different cause and it's going to be treated differently than it is if it's autism spectrum disorder. And why are we comfortable culturally with um, making a clinical diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder, but we're not comfortable with a clinical diagnosis of Lyme disease spectrum disorder. Oh, that's going to take a long time for the world to tease out and why it's taking so long to, to look at uh, what's really causing these issues. I think in a perfect world, in perfect testing, you know, we had perfect testing and trained doctors 
and they could get those tests done um, and it would give accurate results. 100%. And hopefully eventually we'll get there. And you're right, it has to start there and not just the, the, um, the list of symptoms and the uh, in that piece of it, but we should be calling it Lyme, Lyme disease. But let me just Lyme tell you. Exactly. But Debbie, wait, I want to say with this, I want to say with this Sorry. point, right? It's because look, we, 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 you're listing a set of, of symptoms that are clearly Lyme disease symptoms. Yet our medical community is not willing to, to diagnose your son with a Lyme disease spectrum disorder, which would be a clinical diagnosis yet they are willing to diagnose him with an autism spectrum disorder, which is also a clinical diagnosis, right? We don't have like your argument a minute ago as well, if we have clear testing for Lyme disease and we'll be more comfortable with the Lyme disease diagnosis, but we don't have a clear, uh, you know, objective diagnostic set of tools for autism. It's just an observation of symptoms as well. Why are we comfortable with one and not comfortable with the other? And isn't it dangerous if we're putting everybody into this autism box when there are a subset of people who could be treated and overcome their symptoms if it's Lyme disease or certainly yeah. treated differently. Yeah, 100%. And, and how do you tell the difference? If it's the exact same symptoms, when is it Lyme disease and Bartonella? And when is it something else? And well, But are they ex exactly the same symptoms? And if they are the exact same symptoms, are we really talking about a Lyme crisis rather than a, an autism crisis? Yes, they are the exact same symptoms and probably. Uh, in, as I mentioned, I talk to parents all the time who reach out to me, they saw my story. They're like, what is Bartonella? And what is Lyme disease? And I don't remember my child getting bit by a tick and, you know, after we, tease it out. And it doesn't take long to tease it out with these parents. Um, they, it's all the same stories. Everybody well, has these symptoms. And so, yeah, you know, it's probably a major epidemic and the doctors really need, need to pay attention. So, so I can tell you that during the course of, during the course of my parenting, I'm a little bit older than you. Uh, you know, we watch the autism epidemic blossom, right? I mean, just more and more uh, diagnostic, uh, I mean, more and more presentations of autism, more and more uh, diagnosis of autism. And for a long time, I can tell you that at least people who are in my community, they believe that it was as a result of the immunization, right? And there are a lot of people who are concerned about the, uh, about childhood immunizations, and they believe that that was causing autism. And I think most of the research has demonstrated that's simply not true, right? That, that it is not the it is not the um, uh, the immunizations that was causing the autism. So they, they you know they, they're sort of looking for something else. And again, the thought that I have in my mind, and this is just my unwashed thought, is is it likely that we're having uh, you know this increase in the number of uh, young children who are now um, you know dealing with uh, autism spectrum disorders? Is it really just congenital Lyme? Yeah, I, I think a lot of it is, you know, it's, it'll take time to figure out how much, is it all of it? Is it 80%, is it 50%? But I, I definitely think it's a lot. Um, on, on the vaccine piece, I just wanna 
touch on this possibility that's been on my mind and you know I, I have no no data to back it up um it just anecdotal stories but I don't think that the vaccine causes autism I think what it could cause is some immune disruption and a latent Bartonella infection to begin wow. to have acute symptoms. And just for some comparison sake, uh, you know, you look at COVID and I think, again, that's such a great example of what could be going on that um, a couple things, one, long COVID, there's so much discussion about, hey, I got this infection and all of a sudden I started having all these weird symptoms, which are not COVID related, right? And those of us who've been through this realize how much uh, overlap there is with Bartonella and Babesia and Lyme disease. And people are saying they're getting treated and their long COVID symptoms are getting better. And so uh, Dr. Kindler just did a a great article on psychology today, which is worth a read that talks about activation. Um, similarly, and this is just Sammy and myself, we got, even though we were being treated for Bartonella, we had Bartonella symptoms come out right after we got the COVID vaccine. And I yeah. knew exactly what they were. They were so specific and distinctive and they went away in two weeks. And so we, we were lucky for that. And I actually got COVID, same thing, those same symptoms that Ragey Temper came out for a couple of weeks and went away. But I, I believe it's very possible for the kids who seem to have more of a reaction after the vaccine, that it's the same type of uh, process in the body where the immune system is busy over here, trying to build antibodies to whatever's getting challenged. And you have a latent Bartonella uh, that comes out for the first time. I love that, Debbie. I, I, I absolutely love what you just said because it makes perfect sense in the larger context because we've had many people that we've interviewed on this podcast, largely young women who, for example, were given, uh, I, I think it was the Gardasil um, vaccination mm -hmm. and other, other types of vaccines. And shortly after a vaccination, they found themselves in a position where they became chronically ill, right? So I never thought of until you just, you know, again, this is really, really brilliant. Uh, I, I never even thought of the possibility that what's happening with these children who were making the parents are making the connection between the vaccination and the and the onset of the um, the spectrum autism spectrum symptoms was what in fact was happening was you had a baby who was managing the congenital Lyme um, uh, disease. Uh, they got the vaccine. Uh, one sort or another for, you know, for any of the childhood vaccines, it became immunocompromising and it allowed the, the congenital Lyme that their immune system had been managing to take off and they then become, uh, they become chronically ill and begin to show autism spectrum disorders. And of course, what's, what, what's, what's the flaw in any of the research is when you're teasing everything out and you're saying, All right, let's just look particularly at the vaccine. Is there something of that, about the vaccine or the, or the preservatives in the vaccine that's causing the autism and 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 the answer is no it is not but the but the injection of the vaccine or again the preservatives in the vaccine which uh, which are clearly immunocompromising are putting us in a position where a baby who may have never become ill from the chronic um, 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 microbes that were passed on to the child 
then get sick because of it. that's really something that I would love to see, you know, what, you know, some of the experts would, uh, would respond to that. Thank you for that. That's really, really smart. I, I, I want to be really clear about this one point related to that is I am not anti-vaccine. Nor, all, nor these, all these kids have to be vaccinated, but the question is when and how, and, and I think one of the first things is that, again, going back to what we talked about earlier, every child needs to be screened for these infections, which is a little harder. You can't get a clinical diagnosis that early. And so really uh, effective testing has to be in place. And, you know, think about that, because if you were able to test the kids and you knew who was vulnerable and, you know, maybe it's just testing the moms or clinical diagnosis on the moms. But if you knew who was vulnerable and you could isolate that population, because it's not a big population, it's a small population, but it scares the hell out of everybody. Because what happens if that happens to my kid? But if you can identify those kids and maybe give the vaccines more slowly, um, maybe there's some vaccines that are cut or some particular vaccines that are causing more of the issue. And maybe they'll have to tweak those vaccines for or, some or, kids. Yeah, or maybe, maybe, maybe at the time that somebody's going to be vaccinated, there should be some prophylactic um, antibiotics or some other. I mean, there are a zillion different options, right? That absolutely that we should really we really need to start to consider because it is a crisis and right maybe there is maybe there is um a connection maybe there isn't a connection but we certainly have to explore these issues because you know it is it is a terrible crisis so talk to us about um how you began now now that your family uh at least you and your three children are now diagnosed with um with Lyme how are each of you being treated and how is it different for each one of you um but that's a good question. So maybe I'll start with Sammy because okay. he's such he's such an interesting story, right? Because here's a child who had all these issues, eventually diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, and he's I'd like to say eighty percent recovered wow. from the symptoms. And I like to be really careful about that. He's not neurotypical. He's not perfect by any means. And so I want to be clear and not overstate. Be like, well, oh, none, it's a, a none of us are perfect. So I, I mean, let's, let's, yeah. let's be careful with that as well. I mean, maybe Jill's perfect, but the rest of us were, were <laughs> not, not, not even close. <laughs> right. Well, and so, um, but it took a really long time, like everybody else to figure out what the right treatments were. We tried, uh, we haven't talked about this yet, but Sammy actually before the Lyme diagnosis was diagnosed with something called pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric syndrome or okay. PANS. And that was the, the first diagnosis. And that diagnosis uh, was based on running some very simple lab corp tests that are very accurate and indisputable, uh, looking for different kinds of antibodies to different infections. So strep is a big one you'll hear about. And uh, mycoplasma pneumonia, Epstein-Barr virus, cytomegravirus, uh, herpes, the HHV-6. There's a whole set. And he, and a lot of these kids whose parents are thinking about this, that's the first diagnosis they get because it's a really easy test to go after and you get accurate results. And 
pretty much all the kids are showing positive. And so doctors who are maybe not familiar with Lyme, but sort of dipping their toe in, that's where they start. And so they want to start treating those individual infections. And so, oh, strep popped up. I know your, your child doesn't have strep throat. Um, in fact, he never had strep throat, but his antibodies were the second worst that the doctor had ever seen. And, um, and he also had Coxsackie virus, which is hand, foot, and mouth, never had that. But so the doctors want to start treating that. And then the, the kids don't, might get a little improvement. Some see more than others, but they're not, uh, they're not getting completely resolved. And in our case, Sammy didn't respond to any of those kinds of treatments very well. He responded enough for me to believe we were something going on, right? So not a big improvement, like maybe instead of a really bad neck roll tick, he had a little neck roll tick, but you know, he still had lots of symptoms. But anyway, so we went down that path with him for a number of years and doctors were trying this antibiotic, that antibiotic, antivirals. Some of them overlapped with traditional line treatments, which is why I think sometimes the kids may see more improvement versus other times, but he was just in the lower 10% of responding to treatment. And it wasn't until two years ago, and he had IVIG and venous immunoglobulins, which a lot of the kids and uh, respond to somewhat and the parents are begging for. It's very expensive monthly infusion that insurance companies don't wanna pay. And that was the first time where we really saw him almost neurotypical. He would get these IVIGs. He, and it was really tough the first month. He would become so difficult and oppositional and you couldn't even say anything to him. You'd just yell no. And, um, and then like a light switch went on after a few days, all of a sudden he was a different person. Most of his tics were gone. He became, he wanted to come out of his room. He wanted to be social. He talking so much. The age regression went away a lot, but it would only last two weeks. And then he would revert back. And we were on that cycle for five months. And after that, after all the antibiotics were like, I give up. I don't know what to do. My family thought I was crazy. This isn't him. He's not getting better. And I'm like, but he just had this IVIG and he was a whole different person, completely different person. There's something here, but it wasn't until two years ago when our doctor, uh, Dr. Amy Offit, who uh, prescribed disulfiram. And she thought maybe my son, who was 15 at the time, was the one of the first kids to be on it. She didn't know of anybody else to be on it. And he took one small dose, because you have to titrate up really slowly. And the next day, his oppositional behavior went away completely. And he was happy and he was smiling. He had all kinds of other symptoms that got worse, which we later realized were from Bartonella. Um, but that was our first clue definitively, right? Disulfiram treats, Brillia and Babesia. And we had an overnight change and some really terrible, terrible symptoms. So he did that for six months. Then he did the Bartonella treatment. We followed Dr. Moziani's protocol for the rifamp and the prothomycin and the cycline. And again, I talked about all the, the tics, the baby talk, the age regression, the ADHD that 
that went away within a very short time. Um, but one of the most interesting symptoms was his le learning disabilities resolved. And so here's a child who had struggled always through school and, um, and in ninth grade, he was reading at fifth grade level on the Texas statewide star testing. And so, you know, here's a child who had so many behavior problems. He was trying to run away. He was just having a lot of issues. Um, and then you throw on top of it, the terrible learning disabilities. And we were expecting him to have, to need long-term long care. We didn't think he'd ever hold a job. And then after four months of the antibiotic protocol, I just mentioned all of a sudden his learning disabilities went away. And he went from reading at a fifth grade level, and this is in 10th grade now, to a 10th grade level, and um, doing work on his own. Before he was, they were just trying to get him to turn in enough homework to pass his classes so they could move him on to the next grade. And all of a sudden he started getting A's in classes. And in 11th, beginning of 11th grade, so this past year, they moved him out of special ed, and he is the first kid in the entire school ever to be moved out of special education in high school setting. So it's pretty remarkable. And now he's studying for his ACT. So he's going to go to a four-year college next year is our full expectation. So it was the, it was the Bartonella that was the final piece, right? Not, not the only piece. It was the Bartonella treatment that ultimately got him over the top. You know, one of the things, Debbie, I'd like your reaction to this. We we hear, we hear folks who we interview on this podcast all the time say that I was remitted by X and it's always the last thing they did, right? And, and, they, and they sort of ignore everything else that they did before that, that got them to this point where they ultimately had the successes that, like your son is having, right? Where he's now reading, reading at a, uh, an age appropriate level or grade appropriate level and graduating from the special ed program, right? It wasn't just that last protocol that you would use to treat the Bartonella. It was everything you did leading up to that point. Or, or do you disagree with that? Um, there was something in the way in, from him being able to improve on some of those individual antibiotics. And so 100% agree that there's some combination of things that really made a difference. And one of the things that uh, we've, we've uncovered just through working with factor elimination is Babesia, as an example, was really in the way. And one of the reasons he responded so terribly to some of these different antibiotics, he would get very oppositional and he wouldn't come out of his room. He'd be argumentative. You couldn't get him to do anything. And once we got that out of the way, because disulfiram is really effective at clearing up Babesia, um, and we were able to kind of deduce that that symptom was related to the Babesia, then all of a sudden he was able to take the antibiotics for Bartonella, which he could only tolerate at a tiny, tiny dose without having those op oppositional behaviors. And all of a sudden he could ramp up to, you know, 10, 15 times the dose he used to be able to take in just three days. And that was critical to seeing all those advances. Otherwise, I don't think he could have tolerated the, the protocol. You're saying it was the, it was the Babesia that, it, it was resolving the Babesia that allowed him to succeed on the antibiotic protocol that allowed him to resolve the Bartonella. That, 
that is what we believe. So I know uh, Dr. Harry, uh, or he sorry, Henry Lindner has come out with some new research in these kids that uh, if they, the kids who are having a hard time responding to the antibiotics, if you get rid of the Babesia first, it's making it much easier to go after Bartonella and the other infections. I have not personally seen the research. I can't, can't wait to see it. I think that's what we stumbled on with the disulfiram. Okay, so let's talk about you now. Um, how, how did you treat and what was effective in, uh, in your treatment journey? Sure, I, and maybe I could start off by talking about my last most serious symptom. Because um, before I didn't think the symptoms were serious, but during COVID, a, a switch flipped. And, and I was never that worried about treating myself. You know, I, I got to figure the kids out and I'll worry about myself later. But then with COVID, something happened and all of a sudden I had nonstop suicidal ideation. It just, it was, to me, it felt like a tick that it was constantly running through my head and I couldn't understand why. I knew at that point that that was definitely a symptom of of Lyme disease and Bartonella, um, but it, it became very important for me to get treated. Cause even though I could say it's not real, it's just some imaginary thing that's going on in my head. I, I liken it to the movie, Beautiful Mind and Russell Crowe had the imaginary friends and he's like, well, those aren't real. That's kind of how I treated it. And I told my family, cause I was saying it out loud that I wanted to die which is really horrible. And I couldn't not say it. It was like just somebody having a vocal tick. And I just kept telling my family, don't worry. And my husband begged me to go to a psychiatrist. I said, but they can't help me. I'm like, the symptoms on the list. I really believe that's what it is, especially with everything going on with Sammy. And that's when I saw it. Um, I called Dr. Offit. I said, I, I don't know what's going on. I, I really believe this is Bartonella because I know it's all the psychiatric symptoms around Bartonella. And I went and I took Dr. Boziani's protocol. And the next day, I probably had an 80% resolution of suicidal ideation. And within a week, it was completely gone. And not only did that go away, but the ragey temper that I had since I was two also completely went away by the end of the week. And my family was like, well, that's strange. How, you know, you've always been like that. And all of a sudden it was gone. So I don't want to overpromise either for anybody that they're going to get such fast resolution. I consider myself very lucky because, and having the suicidal ideation was horrible. Um, but yeah, it, it was very profound. So, so Debbie, and again, we are all bile individuals, but we're also looking for our own uh, shortcuts if we can, and we want to we want to figure out what it is that we should be trying. So, let's build this out a little bit more because we, you know, we we actually talked about this with Colonel uh, Malakowski in the podcast episode we had with her, where she had actually a very similar experience that you did. That once she treated the Bartonella, her her mental health issues did resolve. And Nicole Bell 
um, had the same experience with her husband uh, or believed, I shouldn't say that because, it, you know, unfortunately Russell Bell uh, didn't have a, a positive outcome, but she believed that it was the Bartonelle that was, was causing his anger issues and, and some of the mm -hmm. uh, oppositional behavior. So um, just so we're clear. So you believe that, you know, the anger issues that you had from when you were two years old, childhood, adolescence, you know, and again, the adolescent piece of this, uh, you know, we, it's hard to tease out hormones, but you know, you had all these like rage issues. You were, you were an angry mom, you had all kinds of things going on. And you take this, you take this, um, this protocol uh, that was successful with your child and, uh, and you became this like mellow mom. That's pretty much it. Wow. it. And it's nice, you know, it feels good. You know, in looking back in retrospect, when things would set me off, like kids lying about whether or not they turned in homework or whether or not it's been three days and they won't put the laundry away or, you know, whatever would set me off. And all of a sudden I could just talk about it like a normal person, like, Hey, you know, I could reason about it and uh, just have a regular conversation versus whatever that anger piece is that took over so quickly where, you know, I was just yelling about it, you know, God damn it, put your, put your laundry away. Why is it sitting on your floor for three days? I was just, it was so nice. The, one of the things that I say is my brain went quiet. It was just peaceful. I didn't have so many intrusive thoughts or negative thoughts or social anxiety. It, it felt really nice when my brain finally uh, went quiet. I love, I love how you say that, Debbie, that that's such a, that's such a great way to explain it. I think so many people who are listening to this are going to relate to that. Just your brain going quiet. Um, something I'd love to touch on with you is, is really the transformation. Um, so, you know, we're talking about your easygoing life growing up in the Midwest and, you know, not even knowing much about ticks or the danger of ticks other than those, you know, a couple of times in camp getting tick bites. And now you've gone through this, this challenge, these ups and downs. And now you're, you're an advocate, you're writing articles, you're advocating for your family and for the Lyme community. Um, I know that you're working on a book to be published. What can you tell us about that? And what, I'd love to know, what, what, how did your perspective change? Because you've come along this journey. And I know that we often learn things about ourselves that we usually only come to know after we go through something extremely challenging. Um, so I'd love to know what part of this experience has been most eye-opening for you and key in teaching you something about yourself that you probably wouldn't have come to know if it weren't for this experience and how you made this transition from someone who didn't know much about it to someone who's out there advocating for yourself and for families. I think a lot of it is driven because I'm so frustrated at what happened. And, you know, I feel like my 17 year old lost his life, right? I mean, hopefully he's going to have a much better life going forward, but he didn't get the normal childhood experience that most kids have. And I really regret that. And I wish there was something more I could do and I could turn back the clock and change things. And I can't do that for my son, but if I can help other parents and other families understand 
the potential of this disease and how to understand whether or not you have it in your family, even from a clinical diagnosis perspective, here's some of the symptoms. And if this sounds like you, it's so important to, to get yourself screened and uh, get your kids screened. And I hope that our story, you know, as I write articles and I try to explain to parents how to think about this, and a lot of it's targeted at the autism community because there are 7 million people, 2% of our population now are diagnosed with autism and probably five have been screened because parents somehow stumbled on this and, and sought it out. And how do we get those kids screened, educate the doctors, educate the community, um, and, and for kids just with psychiatric issues with ADHD too, to, to be able to get their kids well. And so that's, I'm hoping our story, uh, I, I think it's different than a lot of other stories and, and they're all important, but for the kids and the health of the next generation, I think it's so important to share these stories and get people thinking about what else is possible besides just trying to get a bunch of really expensive therapy for the kids and the family on how to cope with the symptoms. You know, what if there's another, another answer? Yeah. And is there anything that you've come out of this with that, that has surprised you about yourself? Has this opened your eyes to something about yourself personally, where you've realized, wow, I'm able to do this now or something that's changed for you? Um, not, not in that way per se, but what surprised me most is that we got here, that we actually, you know, are feeling better, that we know what's wrong. My family did not believe that we had this or that it was a big deal or that it could cause so many symptoms. And especially when it took so long to find a protocol that worked for my son, cause he was the main focus. Um, and, he, and he'd take these medications and he'd sometimes wanna run away or be so oppositional or not come out of his room or have ter terrible OCD or you know whatever those things were. And my family kept saying, this isn't him. This is not what you have. You're making him worse. Um, and I had to have an unbelievable amount of assurity and perseverance to constantly be battling with my family about this disease, to especially over seven years to actually get to the point where we are today. And so I, I, I don't know what I had in me to, to get here, but you know, I'm glad that, uh, that I had that kind of fight and, you know, I want to tell other moms who are going through the same things or having a lot of fights with their family. Cause I hear it all the time in the Facebook groups, you know, just believe, uh, if you're seeing differences and you've got a diagnosis, even if it's a clinical diagnosis and you're having a hard time like us getting well, don't give up, keep reading, keep learning, talk to people and uh, who've been through this and, and fight for your kids and for your family. And I love how you say we got here. I mean, almost every person who's dealt with anything Lyme related that I know of 
they've been through the same thing. And it's, it's this, it's the added challenge, which is, which is what I'm getting from what you're saying, where on top of the physical symptoms, as if that's not enough, you're dealing with anything from fighting insurance companies to fighting people's preconceived notions about what's going on. So it's this entirely, almost this additional battle that you're doing. So I love how you're letting people know that you got there through all of it, you fought, you persevered. And for people who were going through anything like this, there really is a light at the end of the tunnel, you know, and, and just don't give up, like you said. So uh, Debbie, we're gonna get to the point where we're gonna ask you the final question. So Jill, do you wanna ask the very final question as our guest or do you want me to ask the tick boot camp question? Oh, well, I'd, I'd love to. Um, and okay, so Debbie, you, you touched on this already, um, but I think it's definitely worth repeating and, and really emphasizing this. Um, so you're sharing your family's story, you're sharing Sammy's story, and this is going to help and inspire so many people and so many families. So I would love to know, and for everyone to know, if a parent were to reach out to you, and tell you that they're seeing similarities between Sammy's experiences, your experience as a parent, and their own child's experiences. What do you most want them to understand and do? So basically, what is your number one, your greatest piece of advice for parents? Uh, my number one advice is to find a doctor who really knows what they're doing in this space and has worked with kids. I think that is the, the hardest thing and who's going to be flexible and try different things until you find out what, what the right treatment is for your child. I mentioned how a lot of families get down this sort of rabbit hole around the strep and the other infections and doctors who aren't Lyme literate, but I know enough to take those tests, but step back, look at the symptoms. If you have them, you know, make sure you get to a doctor who really understands Lyme disease, can give a diagnose, clinical diagnosis for Bartonella and get the right tests and treatments for your family. Debbie Kimberg, we can't thank you enough for sharing your family's beautiful story with us. Congratulations on your great work and on the great work you're doing with your family. We're really looking forward to your book. So please keep us posted so we can share um, your book with uh, the community when it, when it comes out. And I certainly want to encourage folks to go to uh, LymeZ.org and, and uh, read your really great um, uh, piece that you, you'd written there. And Jill Lechner, thank you so much for co-hosting with me. You are a great, great co-host. I, I really enjoyed working with you and I hope you're uh, gonna be willing to do that with me once again. Absolutely, thank you so much for having me. And, and Debbie, I'm so glad to have been part of the conversation and to learn more about you and your family. Thanks so much for having me. It's a great conversation. I hope it uh, helps other families. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Debbie Kimberg. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Debbie Kimberg and her soon-to-be-released book, Our Hijacked Brains, please visit her website at debbiekimberg.com. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of our post. Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp have created a Tick Byte blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com to view our blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share with us so we can improve our Tick Byte blueprint. 
Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank your community for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you, as always, for listening.